you have a Bible, you can turn in the book of Genesis to chapter 31. A longer selection this morning, we'll read chapter 31, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Longer readings can be difficult because we have very poor attention spans. But it is God's word and it is worth working uh, to hang in there. Uh, If it helps you to follow along in the Bible, I would encourage you to do that. uh, Or uh, work to hear God's word just by listening. But in either case, this is the word of the Lord. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country And Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and he entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction, 
and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yeger Shachadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is to see us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 6. Where we take once more our text, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer. Our great God, we come before you and uh, ask uh, your favor now uh, in opening our eyes to uh, see the excellencies of our King uh, who has opened our eyes uh, to the treasures of heaven, uh, your throne, uh, that uh, wonderful uh, provision and portion uh, which you alone can give and do give in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that as we hear our king who has taken his seat in the heavenly places and who makes known the riches that await uh, those who are uh, following him, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us, lead us, guide us, protect us, instruct us, Lord. Uh, We're so vulnerable uh, with reference to the things of this world. Um, We pray now that you would um, bless our hearts as you refresh us in that heavenly inheritance which comes from you. And may this shape and form and fashion uh, all of our uh, handlings 
of whatever earthly portion you're pleased to give us. Now we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, some things are obviously dangerous. I'm sure you can generate your own list of, from your own experience. Uh, situations that you could tell uh, at a glance, uh, this is dangerous. I had experience uh, this very week. I was running and it was on a country road and the road narrowed uh, to where two cars could barely pass and it was a bridge over an interstate and the shoulder virtually disappeared. And even from a distance, I saw, this is a dangerous situation. I should turn back. It was plain that danger awaited moving forward on that road. Some situations are not so obviously dangerous. Again, this past week, my wife and I got a chance to vacation with her family, and there was a big pool in the backyard, and there were 10, a dozen little ones running around and playing in the pool, and it just seemed like summer fun. And as I was watching, I realized it's very difficult to keep track of all of the children in this situation. It's hard to know who's watching whose children. It's really hard to tell when a child is just splashing and having fun and when they're actually in trouble and can't seem to find their footing. It wasn't an obviously dangerous situation. And somehow that made the situation more dangerous because no one was attuned to that danger. And thus the experience of danger was actually heightened. And now that I've ruined all of your summers, <laughs> allow me to transition to the point. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ makes a striking declaration that practicing our righteousness is dangerous. That doing good is dangerous. Well, that's not obvious at all. <laughs> it's plain that sin is dangerous, much like the narrow road, barely able to accommodate two cars, let alone two cars and a runner. It's obvious that that's dangerous. It's obvious that adultery is dangerous. It's obvious that murder is dangerous. It's obvious that cruelty, lust, greed, covetousness, it's obvious those things are dangerous. Now, it's a sad commentary upon the state of our hearts that we are not even very good at perceiving that, which is obviously dangerous. So then what does that say for us regarding our approach to things that are not so obviously dangerous? Three times the Lord says, be careful. Be careful. What's coming? Be careful when you give to the needy. Wait, what? That's dangerous? Be careful. When you pray, what? That's dangerous? Be careful when you fast. How are these things dangerous? Well, not in the obvious sense that sin is dangerous. And somehow that makes it more dangerous. Isn't that right? Doesn't the devil love to see hypocrites? He loves it more than he loves to see prostitutes or tax collectors. At least if we take the Lord's word seriously, that's what he says, isn't it? He says, you hypocrites ignore God's word. The prostitutes and the tax collectors, 
they're closer to the kingdom than you are. In a sense, when the devil lends his hand in creating formalists, hypocrites, he is most content. C.S. Lewis makes this point rather poignantly at the end of Screwtape's Screwtape letters where Screwtape is giving a toast and he laments that the sinners just aren't as delicious as they used to be, but then someone opens a vintage of hypocrites. (laughs) He's like, ah, yes, hypocrites. They will always be delicious. The Lord assumes we're going to be practicing our righteousness. He assumes that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be doing those things which characterize the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even in this, he says, be careful. Take heed. Which really just does what? Well, it sends us back to him, doesn't it? For all of our care, all of our watchfulness, all of the instructions from Scripture to beware puts us on alert to a danger and then sends us to the only one with the power to overcome that danger. Last week we considered how God's people have always had reason to give generously to the needy. I'm not going to rehearse that sermon because it got a little out of hand as it was, but I trust from two weeks ago you can remember that we had ample reason as those who have received an abundance from God's hand to be generous to those, particularly those in need, for we ourselves are so needy. Today we consider that we give to the needy carefully, heeding our Lord's instructions to be careful even in the doing good, giving mercy to the needy. So let's consider three points this morning. First, we give carefully. Second, we give quietly. And third, we give to the Lord. First, we give carefully. That's how he starts. Beware. Take care. Be careful. It's an imperative. There's a certain urgency to it. He addresses everyone, all of his followers. It's a plural. All of my followers, be careful. Life is dangerous. Christian life is dangerous. I've been listening to John Guerra. Does anyone know John Guerra? He's got a beautiful line in there about uh, seeking a quiet life and then finding a lifelong fight. That's a nice little couplet. I sought the quiet life and I found a lifelong fight. In many ways, that's the paradox. It sits at the heart of the Christian life. We come to Christ, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. And then paradoxically, as we come to him, we receive that rest and yet also find ourselves on a rather treacherous journey. (laughs) On a rather dangerous journey. It's a narrow way. It's a narrow gate. Pitfalls are on every side and the road seems to be beset by difficulty on all sides. Again, I trust as parents, you've had this experience. I was struck by this as a parent myself. I had to take my children across a busy parking lot. You've cross the road with your children or mother duckling in her duck sort of situation, what do you do? You prep them. Be careful. Take care. We're venturing into an area where there's dangerous. Pay attention. We're crossing the street. It's striking that our acts of devotion 
are a busy street, so to speak. Almsgiving, prayer, fasting. But consider any of your expressions of the religious life to the Lord. Do you consider them as beset with dangers? Christ invites us to. He says, this is dangerous. This is an area where you are just as in need of me as any other time. The danger of practicing our righteousness before men. Now, Scripture is full of calls to be aware, to be alert. I'm sure you can call to mind any number of them. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, there's a reason we have to be watchful. We have an enemy, and he is fierce. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Well, there's another reason we have to be alert. That sleep is very much in vogue these days. That dullness is very much in vogue these days. And by these days, I mean always. As a spiritual malaise, as a spiritual drunkenness characterizes the world. But Paul says, not so for you, for you're not children of the night, but you're children of the day, children of the light. And so what do you do? Well, you do what characterizes activities in the day and the light. You're awake and you're sober because that's what you do during the day. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Another reason to be watchful, our flesh. (laughs) We have an enemy, we have the world, and we have a native hostility in the flesh itself. All of these things are found throughout Scripture prompting us to a certain attentiveness, to a certain watchfulness. Now we can rejoice in the image and the comfort that comes from this image of the shepherd and his sheep. What is the sheep's great consolation? It's not their vigilance. It's not their prowess. It's the vigilance of the shepherd. It's the prowess of the shepherd. And we have a shepherd that is greater than David. David scared off lions and bears and wolves. David felled a giant. The Lord Jesus Christ has conquered the greatest enemies, namely death and sin. He is your shepherd. Rejoice for your safe passage through the trials, the troubles, the toils, the dangers of this world. Do not rest in your diligence or your watchfulness, but in the supremacy of our shepherd. There's reason to be encouraged by that. But we would be mistaken if we heard that assurance from Scripture that indeed none shall take any sheep out of the shepherd's hand as a reason not to be watchful. Scripture does not make that wrong-headed conclusion, does it? As we just heard, Scripture amply affirms the all-surpassing excellence of the shepherd, that none shall thwart his purposes, that none for whom the shepherd lays down his life will be lost, that no true harm can come to one of his sheep. And yet it says, be watchful. 
be careful. We've rehearsed this tension before. I trust you won't mind me rehearsing it again because it's right here for us. We sit at the feet of our king who is seated on a mountain and we receive his instruction to be careful. There's no contradiction there, even if there is some tension. The Christian life is one large highway and crossing it has called us unto care. And we can give thanks that the Lord, by and large, has bathed us in quiet, let's say. Is that fair to say? Most of our lives have, by and large, been characterized by quiet. But it's worth hearing that even times of quiet are not ultimately the absence of spiritual threat. Just because things are quiet does not mean that these three enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil, have somehow left off their attacks, left off their interest in doing harm to God's children. But rather, the call covers the entirety of the Christian life, whether it's a season of quiet waters and green pasture, or whether it's a season of the valley of the shadow of death, The call to be watchful, to be prayerful, to be sober, to be alert is meaningfully heeded until we reach glory. And how much more so when it comes to money? That's what we're talking about here, the giving to those who are in need. So I ask you generally, do you feel your daily need for the shepherd? I assure you, you need him daily. Do you feel your vulnerability? I mean, imagine that you were a sheep. You are. (laughs) Imagine you're a child trying to cross a highway or a foolish runner (laughs) trying to cross a bridge that really wasn't made for human beings, but it's the only way. You have to go this way. Do you feel your vulnerability? How do you express it? Do you express it? Do you acknowledge it? I pray that you do. Perhaps the most practical reflex of this vulnerability is right there for us in Matthew 26. Watch and pray. Pray. That expression of dependence upon our God. Isn't that what prayer is? Prayer is the acknowledgement of need. (laughs) Prayer is the practical expression of lack, dependence. So we feel this daily and we express this to our God in prayer. And perhaps there's nowhere more plainly that we feel this need when it comes to matters of wealth. Consider the dangers. Our Lord draws our attention to one danger. One danger when it comes to giving to the needy. Just one. Is there just one? Do you have just one need when it comes to giving to the needy? Are are you so, I won't say that word, are you so, no, I won't say that one either. Do you feel like you're just in need of one thing when it comes to giving? As long as I can do this without doing it before people, I'll be fine. That's my biggest problem. I trust that it's not. I trust that you feel that you don't even know how to begin 
to give to the needy. We saw last week, Paul said he was eager to remember the poor, and we juxtapose that with how eager we are to forget the poor. We'd rather put it out of sight, out of mind, or do it in a neat and tidy way where we just send our check off and don't really have to get involved with the mess that always seems to attend situations of need. Our need is great when it comes to exercising this aspect of the Christian life. Do you feel it? Do you feel your need for what only Christ can supply when it comes to something so basic as giving unto those who are in need? Now, just to rehearse a few of them, Money in and of itself is a great danger to us, is it not? It tends to enslave us. Christ teaches just a little while later in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So he's an actual competitor when it comes to our allegiance. Money. He personifies it there. Luke's gospel goes even further. He calls it mammon, which infuses it with a semi-divine faux deity, like this monster who's vying for our allegiance, and we're really vulnerable to it. And we're doubly vulnerable because we have this whole category of wisdom at our disposal into which we are very prone to baptize our greedy tendencies. Isn't that right? Or even if you're not baptizing your greedy tendencies into this category of wisdom, making provision for the future, making provision for our children, caring for our earthly estate, all of which you can find extended unto us in Scripture, even if you're not baptizing it, you need wisdom. You need wisdom to know how to dispose of your earthly estate in a way that attests that your hope is not tied to this world. That emerges from all of the parables where we're presented as stewards. We don't use the word steward very often. We don't really know what that image means. It's basically we're put in charge of someone else's goods. That's true of everything you have. Can you hear that? Probably not with ease. It's easy for us to mistake everything we have as our own. This is my children's number one error that they make. Not number one. <laughs> like, that's mine. I've made this point before. It's not. It's mine. To which the Lord is like, no, actually, it's mine. <laughs> Everything you have is given to you for a time to be stewarded over. Now, the Lord is very generous. He lets us derive a healthy existence from what he's given us. But don't mistake that fact for absolute ownership. But it's not easy for us to hear that, is it? And because it's not easy for us to hear this, we need a new desire. We need new eyes to see that this wealth doesn't last, that the things of this world don't last. That's what Paul instructs Timothy as he sets him out on his ministry to the church. He says, all right, you're going to deal with people who have a lot in this world. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
So we're tempted to see what we've accumulated by the work of our hands and grow proud to look at people who don't have and think, oh, I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, I've, I've got more native talent than you. Now, most of us, at the end of the day, have to acknowledge that many of the opportunities that have come to us from the naked eye are just chance, aren't they? I mean, did you ask to be born in this country? Did you win some sort of like prenatal lottery where you've got all these opportunities and people who were born in, say, Central Africa, they lost that prenatal lottery? No. (laughs) No. What about the skill set that you have? Did you win some sort of prenatal lottery for that? What about the fact that you have health and strength of mind and body? Did you win some sort of prenatal lottery for that? No, you didn't. What about the fact that you came from a home that equipped you to some degree to accomplish the things? That, did you win some sort of No, you didn't. You see the point, don't you? To assume that somehow what you've accomplished is an absolute commentary upon your ability and somebody's inability is absurd and can't even withstand a sophomoric glance. That means someone who has the intelligence level of a sophomore in college, which, no offense to the sophomores in college, is not that high. Our need is great when it comes to handling money. Our need is great when it comes to extending the generosity which has been extended unto us. We could go on from there, could we not? But that's not the danger that the Lord orients us to. Our needs are great in all of those areas. You need wisdom. You need a new desire. You need the eyes to see rightly that heaven's riches are the only riches that endure. You need the eyes to see rightly that the Lord is pleased to reward those who seek him earnestly, which is what Hebrews 11 says. You need all of that. But the Lord Jesus said, Christ tells us here, more than anything, you need to be quiet (laughs) because you're very prone to ostentation. That means showiness. Mm. So we consider, we give quietly. Mm. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. This image of sounding the trumpet as someone gives, it's likely a figurative image. There have been a number of attempts to try to make this literal, but it seems best that the Lord is just speaking figuratively, imagistically. The idea of sounding a trumpet before you is the idea of drawing attention to yourself, announcing for many to behold what is on display. The kids watch Robin Hood, the uh, Robin Hood with the uh, fox and the lion, which is like, the basis of my understanding of that historical period. So I, I trust Richard the Lionheart wasn't an actual lion, but I get what they did there. <laughs> but there's a scene in there where the royal caravan is coming and the trumpets are trumpeting through their trunks. Dun, 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 Robin, it's the royal caravan. It's the royal treasury. They're announcing that something important is coming. Something praiseworthy is coming. That's the image that the Lord uses here. And he alerts us to our temptation to boast. 
That's what boasting is, right? It's alerting everyone to that which is praiseworthy. Our temptation here to boast in our almsgiving. Oh, that's a bad look. (laughs) In our giving to the needy to be seen as one of the great ones on earth. Now, I alluded two weeks ago what was going on in this exchange. It seems to be the idea that if I can't give money and get money back, the flesh says, well, at least I can get popularity back. So you're still entering into this fleshly exchange where you're giving to receive not money, but glory. You're giving to receive praise from man. And the Lord says, you're going to be tempted to do that. You're going to be tempted even to take something as lovely as giving to the needy and make it about you. He says, beware this temptation. So Mark Mark how your heart loves the praise of man. Mark how the flesh loves, loves to hear its glory sung. Mark how you take a certain consolation in thinking you're better than other people. It's in all of us. Guys, I know you're looking down, but it's in all of us. It's the flesh. It's one of the many tactics that it uses to foolishly think that it can construct eternal life in this world apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what is the praise of man? It's a faint variation of immortality. Mm -hmm. Somehow, if I don't endure, maybe my praise will endure. Maybe they'll sing my song beyond my life. Maybe something that I do will be remembered and thus I'll live on. Except no substitute for eternal life. And think about what a paltry substitute that is anyway. What's the best case scenario? Maybe a generation? Maybe two generations? I don't even know my great-grandfather's name. (laughs) I can't imagine you can go much farther back than that. Mm -hmm. It's a paltry substitute for eternal life where the Lord Jesus Christ says, come to me and I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you that which remains. I'll give you the word from my father, which says, well done, good and faithful servant, a word that remains, that doesn't die out with this flesh. Mark the temptation to do even good so that men will sing your praises. Mark how easily that slips into our motivation for doing good. I don't know if you've really earnestly wrestled with your heart at the level of motivation, but it gets pretty sticky pretty quick down there, doesn't it? I don't know how to untangle that for you absolutely, but the Lord here gives us wisdom attuning us to one of the things that's going to continually creep in as a motive for our doing good. You don't have the power to combat that, but there is one who does. 
the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So I pray that even your vulnerability to such a foul motive sends you to his arms, sends you to the one who knows your heart anyway. You seek from him that portion of earnest faith that he alone can give. The praise that we seek, terrifyingly, the Lord says, you can have it if you want it. It's scary, isn't it? That's what he says. He says, they do this so that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. He says, you can have it. You, you, you want it? Fine. Take it. Take it. And sometimes he gives us seasonally over to that so that we can taste just how fleeting it is. It's like a gummy bear compared to an avocado. <laughs> the gummy bear's gone and you don't even realize you've eaten anything where eternal life is like an avocado. You're like, yeah, that was satisfying. <laughs> the avocados come from the Lord. Gummy bears come from just monsters. <laughs> if you like gummy bears, I'm sorry, I ruined summer for you. Now I've ruined gummy bears for you. The Lord reminds us how fleeting and frail such praise is. You have your reward. Peter says, it's like grass and flowers. Maisie loves to pick flowers. We can't go anywhere where she's not looking out the window. I mean, even on the highway, she's like, Mom, Dad, wouldn't it be amazing if I could just pick all of those flowers? Look at them. And she picks them and she brings them into the house and she puts them on the table and she comes a few minutes later and she's so dismayed because those flowers are basically dead. She's like, what was so lovely over here now is not so lovely anymore. And I teach her, yes, all of life is vanity. No, I don't teach her that. She's not ready for it yet. But that's the picture. <laughs> Man's loveliness, his praise fades. But the word of God remains forever, Peter concludes. And that abiding word is the good news that was preached to you. That there's one who's conquered sin and death. That there's one who has eternal life. That there's one who gives it such that the passing glory of this world can be seen as what it really is. A kingdom of grass and flowers. Such that if someone needs a flower, we give it to them. Because it's fading anyway. And stunningly, the Lord can use even that which fades to truly bless because he's good like no one else is. So he tells us to give quietly, not blowing our trumpet. That's how verse three goes. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, the image is figurative, not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing. It's possible that the left hand is the sinful nature of man and the right hand is the regenerate nature of man. I do think that's possible. You'll find that in some of the ancient church commentaries. But it's probably better just to hear the general sense of don't make a big deal out of this. When you give, don't make a big deal out of it for others and don't make a big deal out of it in your own mind. And we do that, don't we? We magnify our good works, if not before others, in our own mind. We rehearse, oh, no one else has done this. No one else has done this. No one else has done this. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Guess what? Even if that's true, 
it's like a one-off. <laughs> and you've got to be pretty selectively myopic to realize that actually other people have done this. They've been doing it for quite some time. In fact, there's only one who has done something that's truly unique and for the entirety of his life, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the astonishing thing is, is that we are prone to herald the nothing to little that we do, and he appeared and did something truly remarkable and did not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That's what Isaiah 42 says. I don't know if you've ever wondered about what he meant by that. Have you ever wondered about what he meant by that? I look at your faces and I think that you have not. But now that you know, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets is not he will say nothing. It's he will do nothing ostentatiously. He will not blow the trumpet in the street. He will let his works speak for themselves, for he came not to seek his own glory, but there is one who seeks it, and it's the Father who delights to glorify the Son who did not glorify himself. That's our King. We trumpet our mediocrity. You do it. If you've ever rehearsed anything that you've done and thought, wow, I'm really something, you've trumpeted your mediocrity because you are mediocre by definition. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, the truly exceptional one, the truly exceptional king did not trumpet his exceptionality. In fact, he set aside his exceptionality and became a servant for the needy horrifying and wonderful at the same time. The Lord of glory washing the feet of the disciples, horrifying and yet glorious at the same time. The Lord of glory suspended on the cross in the stead of sinners, horrifying and yet an otherworldly glory at the same time. Oh, come on, that's awesome. That's awesome. The hypocrites sound trumpets in the street to herald foe righteousness. The righteous one does not raise his voice, and yet the Father sends the report of him to the ends of the earth. And it is a report that does not destroy, but saves. <laughs> As it brings sinners to the feet of the one who forgives to the foot of the cross where true redemption was purchased for the needy. This is our excellent king. And so if you'll allow me to go just a little bit over time, the last point is that we give to the Lord. I stated this point rather strikingly. We give to the Lord, not in the absolute sense, not in the sense that we can somehow add to him, not in the sense that he needs us. Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works but your neighbor does. <laughs> and the Lord is pleased to send you as his servants to do good unto your neighbors. But we come to a striking passage in Matthew 25 where we realize the giving unto the needy is strikingly the giving unto the one who has no need. 
This is what Christ teaches in Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, this in no way precludes the church from giving to those who are not Christians. Matthew 6 says plainly that we're to do good to all such that any who receive of our good on the day of visitation are going to give glory unto God. But Christ is very plainly giving special motivation to give to Christian needy. How? By virtue of that most blessed and intimate union of king and subject, head and member, brother and those who are God's offspring. Not only does the Father declare our giving to be pleasing unto himself as we give in faith, According to his word, looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the son says, such things are actually done to me. That's what he says, isn't it? Your king says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Could there be a stronger motivation to give to those in need in the church? Could there be anything more compelling than the words of our king who stood in our stead? The words of our king who guards us, keeps us, supplies us with everything necessary for life and godliness. To say, as you do to the least of these, my brothers, so you do unto me. May he give us the eyes of faith to see him when the opportunity to give arises. And may he be pleased to glorify himself by our frail and imperfect works of love, which the Father is pleased to work among us as we look to him in faith. Let's pray. Our great God, we do confess before you our great need We're so vulnerable, Lord, in so many different ways. Uh, We give you thanks for our shepherd whom you raised from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant who guards us and keeps us and in whose hand we are secure. Teach us to heed the word of our king. Grant to us, Lord, that portion which is necessary to steward over what you've given us, Lord, which include the eyes to see our true blessedness, the wisdom to discern how to steward over what you've given us, the hearts that desire to be 
found pleasing unto you and not mere men pleasers. Father, you alone can give these things. We rejoice that you're pleased to do it, Lord. Help us to seek it from your hand. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.